poet and a writer and an editor, I was really looking for an organization that could help me bridge the gap between my concerns as a citizen and my concerns as, as a writer. And, and, and Penn is you know, that rare organization that's right there. And of course, this is the perfect time, right? This is no ordinary time, of course, though, for our country or for Penn America. We face unprecedented threats for our most important shared values, and your support is so important in fighting to protect freedom of expression and the press, defending fact-based discourse, ooh, Lord, <laughs> and resisting measures that would impair the free flow of ideas. For information about Penn and details on other festival events that are happening all week all over the city, visit penn.org for our info table to learn about becoming a member today. And I think it's up somewhere at the front of the room, I'm assuming, I guess. Uh, I'd like to thank the sponsors, supporters, volunteers here, and certainly here at um, Housing Works Bookstore, who made Penn World Voices Festival possible. Thank you all for coming today, and now I'm going to turn it over to our host, Jenny Rosen. Thank you. this event together. We love them. So a round of applause for them, please. Um, and also thanks to our hosts um, here at um, Housing Works and for the amazing and important work that they do as well. Um, I'd like to introduce um, the three folks who are joining me in this conversation tonight. So beginning with Thomas Page McBee, the first trans man to ever box in Madison Square Garden. His Lambda award-winning memoir, Man Alive, a true story of violence, forgiveness, and becoming a man, was named a best book of 2014 by NPR Books, BuzzFeed, Kirkus, and Publishers Weekly. His essays and reportage have appeared in the New York Times, Playboy, and Glamour, and he is a senior editor at Quartz. His new book, Amateur, Why Men Fight, is forthcoming from Scribner's. Then there's Saeed Jones. His debut poetry collection, Prelude to Bruise, won the 2015 Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry and the 2015 Stonewall Book Award slash Barbara Giddings Literature Award. It was also a finalist for the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award, the Lambda Literary Award, and the Publishing Triangle Award. That's all you. That's all you, man. Uh, he's also uh, uh, BuzzFeed's executive editor of Culture. His memoir, How Men Fight for Their Lives, is forthcoming from Simon & Schuster. And as if that wasn't enough, Jennifer L. Posner. 
media critic, founder of Women in Media and News, and author of Reality Bites Back. Her work has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Ms. The Nation, and Bitch, among others. She's conducted media literacy keynotes and workshops about media and gender, race, class, and sexuality for schools, conferences, nonprofits, and businesses in the US, Canada, Ireland, and Turkey. She's planning her next book on media complicity in Donald Trump's rise to power. And also, most important tonight, she's on drugs. So uh, that's, that's, that's only kind of a joke. Um, Jen had a car accident um, this weekend, and uh, um, we're so, so grateful, A, that she's okay, and B, that she is able to join us nonetheless. She's on painkillers, so she's going to make extra sense tonight, and <laughs> we're going to treat her with the love she deserves. And I'm your host, Jenny Boylan. I'm the author of a whole bunch of books, including the just-published Long Black Veil, a novel of suspense about identity and secrets, a book that, who knows, might just have a transgender person in it if you look real hard, <laughs> or even two transgender people. I do lots of stuff. I teach at Barnard. I'm the co-chair of the board of directors of GLAAD, and I'm a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. I have two sons, Zach and Sean, and I've been married to my wife, Dee Dee, for 28 years, 12 as husband and wife, and 16 as wife and wife. Wahoo. Yay, marriage. <laughs> so our plan here is for each of us to do a short, maybe 10-minute or so reading, to follow that up with about 10 minutes of conversation, and to follow that up with about 10 minutes of questions and conversation with all of you. Um, I think there's not a mic in the audience, so when we get to that part, um, if you'll just raise your hand, um, I'll, I'll call on you if need be. Um, I'll repeat your question real loud. Um, also, I request, if possible, during the Q&A part, um, uh, that your question could be, if possible, an actual question rather than, you know, it's like a little speech of your own. <laughs> you know what I mean. Anyway, we'd be grateful for that. <laughs> we have a hard stop tonight at 7.15 as we prepare for the next panel, which is on gender, power, and faith, right here at 7.30, featuring the Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, uh, Garg uh, Conley, Joy Layton, and Banya Vanga Wenenya. Between those two events, the panelists here will head over to the table uh, and sign some books for you and have some conversation and drink a few beers. So um, let's begin this way. Maybe, um, why don't we start if Saeed would um, read the piece that Eileen Miles provided. You want to come up? Why don't you do it up here? Um, um, so here is Saeed channeling Eileen Miles. I told you, many hats, many hats. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, do, where do you, you want to sit? Want to chill? Live your truth, girl. Okay. Hi. Um, I, I had the pleasure of uh, publishing an essay by Eileen Miles on BuzzFeed Reader uh, about Hillary Clinton a year ago, um, and so that uh, is involved here. And this is—I'm I'm just going to read it. We're going there together. I greet you and regret that I am not with you all. I'll jump right in. Like the space we are in is transforming always, and so is being a dyke. Being a son, a daughter, a poet, and a worker is not the same as it was maybe 40 years ago when I began, actively, began the actively queer part of my journey. I've changed my font time and time again, and lately it's Ariel. Only Saeed can see it, but you know what I mean. 
A couple of summers ago, I was in a reenactment of Mishfest, and in part because of editing choices, but I think mostly because nobody likes being copied and distributed widely. All of us like to be the original, at least, I think, of our own gender and community. People were pissed and said I had betrayed the lesbian community because of what Transparent, the television show, did. How it described them. I think the show used the historic but not global, not even Mishfest enmity between trans women and dykes as a narrative thread. Then the people who dismissed the objections of these angry dykes referred to them as TERFs, trans-exclusive radical feminists. Later in the year, or the next one, I guess, I wrote an essay for Saeed about Hillary Clinton. People, many young women, I think, had been saying that they were not too interested in the fact that she has a vagina. Hillary's became very famous, and we're assuming she has one at that point. We didn't hear a peep from her, like, don't talk publicly about my vagina. She was cool, which in some ways was a trans moment. Hillary, I, just reading, Hillary didn't defeat, defend her vagina, did she? Uh, I, in my essay, said I very much was interested in her vagina, not personally, and I wanted it in that chair, the one in the Oval Office. I was then called transphobic and a turf. I've seen both sides now. I think having a cunt does not exclude females who do not have cunts. I welcome you and I ask that you welcome me. No one gets to decide what is female. After the centuries of men defining women, I am not willing to be silenced by women who feel entitled to define what being female means. I realize I am opening a whole can of worms here. Interesting way to describe the cunt moment. Cunt is apparatus, not essential. I do feel that dividing people by gender is a dangerous enterprise, both within a gender and without, within a building and without. It hides the privilege that is being assigned to each by the essentialist definitions of power someone is loudly or secretly holding. What do I get if I am this? What do I get if I am that? I've only talked a lot about cunts and pussies because these are verboten words, and it's fun. Some words change a room. They are not membership cards, they are calling cards. You've got one too, a card, not a cunt. Name it or don't name it. All I want to say about gender and power and representation today, May 2nd, is that I don't like being copied either. Copied, then branded, transphobic, or turf. I remain the gender of Eileen. Lately, after being uncomfortable with the sound of they as a pronoun, I began to request it. Because I realized that though I'm a butch dyke, I've never stopped identifying as a female, even though I've always wished to be a male, felt male, prayed to be male, and do think I am male, pretty much, very often. Someone who issues a driver's license does not have the right to say what I am. Someone who hands me a cup of coffee does not have the right to call me ma'am, though he has that capacity. He will also call me sir. I am powerless on so many levels, yet I will do what I can. I have supported the word lesbian through its unstylish turn since, well, maybe since somewhere in the last 10 or 20 years. Because it always gave me a place to go, a way to be, and an opportunity to love many times. I frequently felt other there, but so what else is new? Lesbian is like a shirt, and an especially important like a shirt, I don't, need to st I don't need to store, but can simply keep meaning. 
I don't like to dump a word that's given me so much. People say, oh, she's anti-trans or she's second wave because I like to say I'm a lesbian, I'm a dyke. Genderqueer gave me a fresh way to hold my shift. They gave me that too. If you ask me my pronoun, I will say they because it is a multiple. It is free and open and awkward as I am. I'm trans, she writes in all caps. I'm a woman and a man and a boy and a girl, a queer, a daughter, and a son. I'm flaggy. Sad to be absent, and thanks for listening to me here. Eileen Miles. Jeez, we've been upstaged by someone who's not even here. Hassan, <laughs> hello, hello. I'm not hearing anything out of this. Are you here? Oh, it is. Hello, hello. Oh, there, I got a spot right into it. Hey, let's bring up the panel, shall we? Come on up, everybody. So here's Thomas Page McBee next to me. Um, Saeed, we'll put you in the middle, and Jennifer is over there. Um, and is there a switch? No, I think you just got to put your, okay. Hello? Get your, your face in there. Hi. All right, you want to, that was so cool. Um, thank you, Eileen, and thank you for channeling Eileen Saeed. Fun. I hope I did a good job. I hope I did that yeah. well. It was fantastic. Um, so uh, let's let's do this. Um, maybe somewhere around ten minutes or so, we'll hear from uh, Thomas, uh, then um, Jen, and then Saeed, and then back to me, and then uh, just a complete mosh pit. Okay, sound good? So uh, here's Thomas Page McBee, a fighter and a champion. Well, thank you. I'm actually not a champion. I lost my fight, but... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I feel like a champion inside. Um, so uh, I sort of debated what to read to you guys um, that would fit with this panel, and I just decided to read a few minutes from my book that I'm working on. Um, I'm sure my editor is going to be thrilled because I'm sure this will be completely rewritten later, but, you know, it's a process, right? And that's queer. Um, so, uh, so this is um, just a few minutes from the introduction, and it's um, six months before my fight. And the book is about, um, it's, a it's a book about masculinity, and I'm trans, so I'm trying to take on masculinity from the position where I'm standing. Uh, and I th I'm doing that because I feel like I I've not really seen people engage very deeply with uh, what makes a man beyond um, the questions we're sort of all familiar with, and I think, um, men have a gender and making it visible to, to all of us is probably a, a crucial point in stopping um, some of the violence that comes out of the, the shame and, and honor associated with masculinity. So that's the point of the book. It's about the fight in a lot of ways and a lot of other things and, and here's the introduction. So it's six months before the fight. I wouldn't call it running away exactly, but I was walking very fast. My pursuer, a big biceped Jersey guy in a white t-shirt, chased me down my own block on the Lower East Side while accusing me hoarsely of taking a picture of his car. I was 34 and just growing into my beard. I had been a man for four years. In that time, I'd injected testosterone and alternating thighs every week. In that time, as my body bloomed into a magical, hairy flower, and even as I found genuine joy in its changing topography, I lost all coordinates. I tried to rechart the territory, the women crossing the other side of the street, the, friend who began, the friends who began to offer handshakes instead of hugs, the bros and mans and brothers and dudes, the sudden authority my dropped voice commanded, the gnarly smells of locker rooms and bathrooms, 
The stricken pregnant pauses of first dates, which ballooned as I realized that I was meant to do something, but I had no idea what. <laughs> hey, the guy yelled on Orchard, asshole. I had no idea what I'd done to provoke him, only that he was the last in a string of men that summer set on fighting me. I continued my fast walk, feeling steely. If he thought I was scared, he'd misread me. I'd stopped feeling fear when I'd watched my mom die. That was six months ago. She'd gone to the ER after a fall because her nose wouldn't stop bleeding, and then her life just collapsed in on itself. Her death was a string of humiliations. The doctors in the ER lecturing her about her failing liver until she cried, the horrible Medicaid nursing home with the patients parked for hours in the hallway, the ammonia in her scientist brain, the fact that she could not donate a single pickled organ despite checking that donor box at the DMV all her life, the ICU where we had to cover ourselves to get close to her, how it fell on us, her kids, to tell her that she would die and soon, her hyperventilation into a near coma as a result, how I didn't really get to say goodbye. Now I stared at this red-faced idiot on Orchard Street doing a little bit of calculus in my head. That's where the trouble started. If I was honest, I too was looking for a fight. I wanted to hit him, and I didn't want to hit him, but if I were to hit him, I had no idea how. Fights were a new feature in my life, a public opportunity to show protest, unlike sobbing, which I did quite a bit of, but always alone. Crying in this body felt private and useless and overwhelming in a way that it hadn't before. After keeping up a relentless optimism in the face of childhood abuse and a traumatic near-death mugging in Oakland when I was 29, after waking up one day alone in New York City, two years into my transition, broke, transformed, with muscles sprouting up and down my body and hand tattoos I'd barely remembered getting, bleeding ink onto my bed, after I nosed out the grittiest beauty and every harrowing second of it, it was my mother's sudden death that undid me. The universe felt like a malevolent force, and I, so small a person, in it. I don't know why, but it made me want to get punched in the face. The op opportunities were certainly plentiful, I'd be been stared out in bars, confronted by an enraged cyclist whose spittled mouth was so close to mine we could have kissed, and pointedly muscled off sidewalks up and down Manhattan. That day on Orchard Street, after he chased me down the block, I halted, turned to face the guy, and asked him what exactly he wanted. He pointed back at his car, a bright red Mercedes. You took a picture of my fucking car, he said. Again, his face red with rage. We stared at each other. I was taking a photo of the restaurant in front of your car, I answered hating my placating tone. I want to take my girlfriend on a date there. I saw the flash, he said, <laughs> as if catching me in a lie. <laughs> no, it's real. No. I <laughs> you saw the flash bounce off the window, I answered, trying to sound as menacing as he did, trying to limit my vocal range, trying to not add an upward lilt to the end of my thought. I learned to walk with square-shouldered confidence through dumb practice, just as I trained myself to limit exclamation points in my correspondence. I'd accepted these prices of admission at first, but lately, every day felt like a struggle against a bad translation. What had happened to me? I was a hologram of a man, this beard and muscle now just a blur of a man in passing. He clotheslined me as I attempted to shift directions, his meaty arm stretching out across the length of my chest scars, matching with odd position precision, the reminder of the technology that allowed me this moment, this rich reward of being in the right body, and finally being myself. I could smell on his breath. I could smell mint on his breath. Give me your phone, he said, emphasizing each word. <laughs> Jersey and I both waited for me to do something. 
He had 75 pounds and five inches on me. He looked wild in his leather jacket, his face unshaved, telegraphing the kind of masculinity that I knew that I could smell compensated from some deep maw of insecurity. It was hard to tell, as it always is, if he was the kid who got bullied or the bully himself. Fuck it, I thought, full of holy rage, tempted in broad daylight to risk my whole body, as men often do, to prove my right to exist in it. I curled my fist, and then some higher part of my brain clicked on, and I asked myself why, if I was so desperate to not be a cliché, was I being such a cliché? I'll leave it there. Wow. Thank you, Thomas. Remind me again, the book is coming when? Oh, uh, well, it's due in August, so I hope it's coming a year from August. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it gets in on August 1st. Thank you. Um, Hey, here's Jennifer Posner, and uh, she'll talk about media and other things. Take it away. I will in one second. Oh, she's already on Facebook now? What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So, first, I'm just going to say that. I'm super psyched to be alive, Uh, and if I'm a little loopy or I trip over words, I'm on some pain meds and muscle relaxers, so there you have it. Um, Also, uh, today, I didn't realize we were going to read Eileen's piece, so when you had said 15 minutes, I bumped up my thing, so I'm going to try to get it down to the 10 that it was before, but I don't remember, and, and being on the meds, I don't necessarily... Anyway, okay, so. You're, good. You're just good. I'm psyched to be here um, because, as a media critic, as a journalist, as a media literacy educator, as a media activist, I really believe that media have life and death implications and impacts for our communities. So, in my book, Reality Bites Back, um, that's about how reality TV functions as backlash against gender and racial justice. Um, And because we have the brilliant Jenny Boylan as our moderator, I'd love to talk in the Q&A if you're interested about um, some of the issues in reality TV and queer representation and how um, Jenny's incredible uh, intervention uh, with I Am Kate (laughs) created what should have, what what by all rights would have been the most, one of the most exploitative um, pieces of dreck on television and created it into um, a really subversive uh, cultural moment that had never seen been seen before on, on corporate media. So I'm happy to talk about that with you or not as you wish, um, but uh, or any other issues around representation in other forms of media. But f- in the Q and A. But for now, um, I want to talk specifically about news media and how coverage can be deeply detrimental to the human rights and safety of queer people and of other marginalized communities. So first off, trigger warning, because this isn't going to be the usual fun thing. I usually like to be funny in talks, and this is going to be really dark. Um, I just want you to prepare yourself for some dark shit. Um, So show of hands, who here has heard of Matthew Shepard? Okay, that's what I thought, almost all of us. Now, show of hands, who here has heard of Sakia Gunn? One, two, I see only a couple of hands. And that's, that's exactly what I expected. Um, if you can show the picture of Sakia and then pause on it, that would be great. Um, so Sakia Gunn was a working class, gender nonconforming black lesbian. 
She was only 15 years old in 2003 when two men drove by and harassed her on the street and propositioned her and her friends, as so many of us get propositions on the street. Um, but when she said no and she told them she was gay, they jumped out of the car and assaulted her and stabbed her to death on the street. And there's a reason that almost none of us have heard of Zakia. In the year after their respective murders, uh, journalism professor Kim Pearson found that only 21 major newspaper stories were written about Zakia's murder, compared to 735 major newspaper stories on the murder of Matthew Shepard, who was a white, gay, upper-middle-class young man in Wyoming in 1998. And in fact, full news coverage of Shepard's murder netted even uh, far more than that, thousands of stories, because Pearson didn't include TV and radio or minor newspapers in her coverage. Um, so massive media outrage, which was as it should have been, um, turns Matthew Shepard's name into a national rallying cry against anti-gay hate crimes, leading to some positive public policy changes um, and advances in gay rights, in particular, uh, a 2009 National Hate Crimes Act partially in his name, showing the substantive good that muckraking solid journalism can do, the words that we all heard about as uh, in the opening introduction pen video. Um, in contrast, the virtual blackout in media coverage of Sakia Gunn's murder helps obscure how dangerous street harassment and assault can be, especially for girls and women of color, for lesbians, for transgender women, and for low-income women, all of whom suffer extremely high rates of harassment and assault in public space. And that problem is exacerbated and misreported by, um, and underreported in news media. Analyzing this kind of coverage can reveal what kinds of people corporate media want us to empathize with and who we're supposed to fear or revile, whose lives are seen as sacred and whose are expendable. We can um, pause on just the next screen. Uh, um, who, whose bodies are considered worth, oh, sorry, no, I just meant, uh, sorry, okay, anyway. <laughs> I didn't see what was back. Um, whose bodies are considered worth defending and whose are seen in media as unfit for protection? And which victims are said to be asking for it, right, versus which perpetrators are let off the hook and why? So in 2006, much like Sakia, a group of black lesbians from Newark, New Jersey, same town as she was from, including Patrice Johnson, Renata Hill, Venice Brown, and Terrain Dandridge, they were aged 19 to 24. They were walking in the village, and a guy named Wayne Buckle started to make sexually provocative comments to them and started harassing them. Now, Patrice responded that she was gay and he should leave her alone, and then just as happened with Sakia, her harasser got belligerent. So keep in mind, these women had no criminal records, two of them were moms. Here's what happened in their own words from the independent documentary, Out in the Night. Please push play. Stood up from the fire hydrant and started calling us dyke bitches, you lesbian bitches, I'll fuck you straight. Basically said that you're a rapist when you said, like, I would stick my dick in your ass. You know, what would you have said if we were straight? Would you still would have said that, basically saying that you're a rapist? He was coming for us, that was clear as day. No means no, just take no. Then he swung on me. I started swinging back, we started fighting. And he grabbed me down to the ground, he's, he's choking me. I felt like I was basically fighting for my life. So just pause there, please. Um, so now just to be clear, 
From the documentary and from court testimony, a street harasser followed these women, wouldn't leave them alone, shouted obscenities at them, spat on them, threw a lit cigarette at them, threatened to rape them, punched them, ripped the hair out of one of their scalps, and choked another of these women. But the women fought back. And because they did, Buckle did not get the chance to rape them, and he did not kill them, and they did not die on that street. Unlike Sakia, they survived, which is amazing and powerful. And this story made national news with headlines like, New Jersey women thwart rape, uh, rapist and self-defense saves courageous women from street stalker, and they became American heroes, right? Yeah, no, unfortunately, no. I wish that was the case, but that's certainly what would have happened if we lived in a media culture that actually cared about women's safety. If corporate media didn't treat gender non-conforming women as inherently predatory, didn't treat black women as inherently criminal. So instead, um, in reality, the New Jersey Four uh, did become, sorry, they did become national news in coverage that dehumanized them, ignored or downplayed Bruckle's crime against them, and ultimately portrayed them as the perpetrators of, quote, get this, a hate crime against a straight man rather than as triumphant defenders of their own safety. So please press the uh, play. They were a pack of lesbians who jumped this guy and, and almost killed him. He was attacked by a group of women yesterday in Manhattan. Police say the man made a comment allegedly to one of the women. He was attacked because he was a straight man. Just a real nasty gang assault. What was this fight about? Why do we even have this fight? The media doesn't tell the whole story. It's called gay bashing, but they won't call it that. So please press pause. Um, so now, as <laughs> This is where an intersectional analysis of news media is crucial, right? Because corporate journalism did not recognize these women as the victims of street harassment or assault. Why? Because biases regarding sexuality, gender, race, class, they resulted in this inflammatory news coverage contributing to a widespread zeal especially throughout the city, but even it became national news, a zeal for vengeance against the New Jersey Four. They based on this news coverage, were arrested and charged, and Buckle wasn't. Please press play and just really quickly pause after when we get to the next uh, one, one more screen. Okay, pause, please. So, <laughs> tabloid headlines like uh, lesbian wolf pack guilty and girls gone wilding, etc., cetera, um, dehumanize these women equating them with animals. Even quote-unquote respectable news outlets got it so, so wrong. Like the New York Times headline, quote, man is stabbed in attack after admiring a stranger. Admiring, right? Feel free to f feel sorry for poor, well-intentioned Wayne Buckle. All he was trying to do was admire a stranger by threatening to rape her and pulling her hair out of her friend's head. But yeah, he was so admiring. Um, and the Times forgot to mention that part, but they also, the first story, the words of the story, the lead in journalistic parlance was extremely telling. It started with, it all began harmlessly. It didn't get better from there, by the way. The entire Times piece was told from Buckle's perspective. Not one of the women harassed was quoted. 
The piece ended by quoting Buckle saying, quote, it's not a crime to say hello to a human being. Now, if only media treated certain women and certain queer people and certain people of color as fully human, right? But in part because of that guilty from the get-go tone of news coverage, Venice, Terrain, Patrice, and Renata were sentenced amongst, uh, among them to between three and a half to 11 years in prison. By the time the story made it to cable news, the New Jersey Four had become the poster girls for supposed deviant gay gang violence. So as you listen to this next clip from the now happily departed O'Reilly Factor, I... <laughs> Do we want to pour one out for Bill O'Reilly? No, I didn't think so. Um, I want you to keep in mind, uh, if you can play the, just the next image. Pause that there, please. Um, if you can keep in mind a few key media literacy questions when you watch the next clip. One, is any actual evidence being offered or are wild stereotypes being presented as fact? Two, does the B-roll footage, meaning the background video, does it match the content of the story? And three, did I say B or three? Whatever, I'm on drugs. Um, <laughs> how might the framing change, the framing of the story, change if the subjects of the story had a different race or sexuality or gender? So now please press play. Back at the book segment tonight, 29-year-old Wayne Buckle was attacked by a lesbian gang here in New York City last August. Four of the women received prison sentences. In Tennessee, authorities say a lesbian gang called GTO, Gays Taking Over, are involved in raping young girls. And in Philadelphia, a lesbian gang called DTO, Dykes Taking Over, are allegedly terrorizing people as well. Joining us now from Washington, Fox News crime analyst Rod Wheeler, and tell right. me what's well, going you know, on. Th there's this national underground network, if you will, Bill, of women that's lesbians and also some men groups that's actually recruiting kids as young as 10 years old in a lot of the schools and the communities all across the country, and they're recruiting these individuals to be a member of their organization. Now, these organizations are kind of set up sort of like a fraternity or a sorority, but they're very violent, and they actually carry a number of weapons, and they commit a number of crimes. So when they recruit the kids, are they indoctrinating? them into uh, homosexuality? Yes, as a matter of fact, that some of the kids have actually reported that they were actually forced into you know, performing sex acts and doing sex acts with some of these people. The other thing, too, that our viewers are going to find very, very interesting is the fact that they actually carry, some of these groups carry pink pistols. They call themselves the, packet, the pink pistol packing group. And these are lesbians that actually carry pink pistols. That's nine millimeter Glocks. They use these, they commit crimes, and they cause a lot of hurt to a lot of people. All right, so we, th we understand that that's ludicrous enough that we're communally laughing our asses off, right? But Fox News' audience does not understand that that's ludicrous. They believe their guru, right? And so I'm going to speed through some answers to those media literacy questions and then... Um, pass on, uh, we'll continue the discussion. Um, but first, remember those questions I asked, one, zero evidence was presented in that segment. So when you're, when you're evaluating media, one of the core media literacy uh, sort of tools you have is to figure out what is fact and what is fiction, right? Zero evidence was referenced, as it so often ha happens in cable news, extreme stereotypes and biases were packaged as facts by the only source for that story, Rod Wheeler, who was a uh, Fox News analyst on the network's payroll, a pundit but a regular in-house 
paid for his opinions guy. And it turns out Wheeler plucked his claims out of thin air. According to follow-up reporting by the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, See, I actually cite my sources. Um, <laughs> Wheeler was unable to name a single law enforcement agency or officer or police report or media account or any credible source to verify his sensationalistic fever dream about a national epidemic of lesbian gangs rampaging across America, raping your daughters, um, you know, Fox News daughters. Um, and those cute Glocks that he mentions, those little pink pistols, well, there is an organization called the Pink Pistols, but they're not a gang, they're an NRA-friendly organization. Uh, they're a lesbian and gay firearms group, basically. Um, the second media literacy question, the B-roll, the footage that was used, wasn't of lesbian gangs, it was lifted from YouTube of girls in fighting over a guy. So they weren't even lesbians, no less a gang. <laughs> And, the fi and finally, as, as for the framing of the story, it's really hard to imagine. Remember I was asking, you know, how would the story be framed if subjects had a different positionality or identity? It's hard to imagine a piece about hazing violence among white sorority sisters being packaged as a lesbian gang, right? Or O'Reilly, but you know, because O'Reilly, like the rest of corporate press, branded the New Jersey Four a lesbian gang primarily because they were black. They, that they were also gay gave Fox News an excuse to stoke their audience's fears about a salacious sort of gay boogie woman out to recruit your kids' fear among their audience. So um, I was going to close with some stuff about me making media accountable, but we can talk about that later if you're interested. Thank you. Thank you, Jen Posner. Thanks, Jen. Awesome. And now here's Saeed, Saeed Jones. Hi. Uh, would you mind if I read an essay about The Fifth Element? <laughs> okay, so The Fifth Element is one of my favorite films. Uh, and, and so when I thought about um, queer representation in media to kind of to give a preface of why, what I thought about is um, depending on where you are on the power continuum. So basically, if you are not of wealthy, cisgender, straight, white man in America, right, the rest of us on this continuum, right, um, there's, there's a lack, right? We, we don't see ourselves at often or at all or accurately or in a multifaceted, interesting way, right? And so I think when, when you're coming from a lack, whether it's you're a black kid like me who grew up in the suburbs of North Texas, go Louisville High School fighting farmers, uh, or, <laughs> or like actually after uh, graduate school, my students when I was teaching in downtown Newark, New Jersey, um, and so you know I remember a lot of this and these conversations. Um, you know, you you, it's not like we're going to stop engaging media and stop liking pop culture, right? We're humans; it, it serves a human need. You find yourself like contorting and bending to, particularly like in entertainment, right, and art, to identify as best you can with like slivers of characters who are kind of like parts of you, maybe, sort of, right? Um, and so I wanted to write about that from my perspective growing up in, in Louisville, Texas, um, a black gay kid with a single mom who raised me practicing Nichiren Buddhism in the Bible Belt. Okay, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm writing memoir too, girl. You know, it's like we got context here. We got a lot to discuss. Um, we should do an event together too. Yeah. Men fighting. It's a yeah. thing. It's all the rage. It's all yeah. Let's fight each other. You will kick my ass, Thomas. I know a setup when I see it. I know a setup when I see it. Okay. And this, I, I published this uh, on uh, Lambda Literary a, a few years ago. 
Okay. Notes after 15 plus viewings of the fifth element. Never has it come about that I've turned down an opportunity to watch the fifth element. Surely by now I have sat through at least 15 viewings. Quite a feat for me considering that I typically hate reliving films, even the ones I enjoy in the moment. The reason is simple. I prefer not to think while watching movies. Let me, at least in the dark, I ask of my critical self, be dumb and amused and emotional and campy. Let me just enjoy the damn thing. And so, as I prepare to write about the fifth element because an editor asked me, I would like for you to know that I'd much rather not write about it. I fear that if I think about it for too long, the whole shimmering structure of my love for this film will crumble to dust. Here, I hold a line from Lydia Davis' short story, Break It Down, before me like a talisman. Quote, you can kill it too, even by thinking about it too much, though you can't help thinking about it all the time. It's entirely possible that each of the sections of this essay will contradict and cancel one another out, to which I say, exactly. Two, attempting to protect me from being ravaged by pop culture, my mother had a rule. I don't care about violence, she would say whenever I held up a possible movie rental in the new releases section of Blockbuster, RIP. But quote, <laughs> no sex. I likely could have saved us both a great deal of frustration by confessing that I was absolutely uninterested in watching straight people have sex. <laughs> but that is hindsight. This was 1997 and the video cassette in my hand was Luc Besson's The Fifth Element. I remember looking at the advertisement for the film, scanning Mila Jovovich and Bruce Willis's faces, as well as the spaceships and constellations whirling in the background. No sex, mom, I concluded. A few hours later, we were sitting in the living room on the couch with our cocker spaniel wedged between us while Ruby Rod, played by Chris Tucker, seemingly performed cunnilingus on a futuristic flight attendant. I had never seen anything like this on screen before. I probably, and actually not probably, I knew I wasn't entirely sure what he was doing down there, but my mouth was agape. I waited for my mother to get up and turn the television off. Instead, though, she was laughing hysterically. And she kept laughing, so did I. And if I recall, we watched the movie again together the following night. When we would get irritated with each other, sometimes we would mimic Ruby Rod and wave each other off saying, bzzz, bzzz. <laughs> Three, oh, Ruby Rod. Garbed in John Paul Gaultier's roses and leopard print, waving his microphone about like a scepter, bickering and mewling and narrating high-pitched and at the speed of light, Chris Tucker steals every scene he is in, and I love him for it. Even though I've watched the film enough times to know all of his lines from memory, it's not uncommon for him to make me, so, to make me laugh so hard I start to cough. 3A. When I was a teenager obsessed with The Fifth Element, I was devoted to the idea that Ruby Rod was a gay character who gets to take part in saving the universe. Except, as far as we know, Ruby isn't gay. I didn't know about the phrase gender bending at the time, didn't know about Prince either. Texas. Texas. <laughs> and had no schema for an effeminate male character who has sex with more women in the film than Bruce Willis's macho protagonist. Ruby was a kind of man I thought would only be possible light years into the future. Funny, black, attractive, fierce, and most importantly, alive by the end of the movie. 3B, Ruby Rod troubles me. 
He explodes into the narrative, black, loud, and out of nowhere. Like the standard magical Negro, he is functional in service of the film's white heroes, but has little to no story of his own. We know basically nothing about him except that he's hilarious, really loud, and sexually promiscuous. When you set aside his costume choices, and by the way, actually, Prince originally was going to play uh, Ruby Rod in the film and then was unable to do it, I think, because of touring. So, you know, if you think about that, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, when you set aside his costume choices, he's really not that different from most black comic characters. In fact, he is almost offensive. 3C. I'd rather not think about it. 3D. Susan Sontag. Camp taste is, above all, a mode of enjoyment, of appreciation, not judgment. Camp is generous. It wants to enjoy. Four. Meanwhile, something black and unacceptable is lodged in the universe's throat. It's not a planet, exactly. It does things, it does things that planets, at least planets like our own, cannot do. It makes phone calls, for example. When this mysterious black entity calls Zorg, played by Gary Oldman, we can't understand its language, only its menace. When the villain puts the phone back on the receiver, a thread of blackness seeps down his forehead like blood from an intellectual gunshot. The black thing has an appetite. The military fires the most powerful nuclear missiles at its, in its arsenal at the black thing, and the blackness expands, swallows the warships whole, and keeps expanding. It grows every time it's fired upon. Though the name isn't mentioned in the film itself, in the screenplay, Luc Besson named this entity Mr. Black. Five. I suppose we should take comfort in knowing that a black, and I wrote this before you know, we had a black president, but I suppose we should take comfort, or maybe we did, I can't remember. I suppose we should take comfort in knowing that a black man will eventually become president of the universe. But that's not, neither here nor there. Six. Let's have a moment for Diva Plava Laguna, or as she's most often referred to, the blue alien opera diva, my queen. Everything about her scene electrifies me. The futuristic remix of the mad scene from Luca de Lillemore, uh, I'm saying it right, is brilliant, as is the way Luc Besson splices the diva's performance with Lilo, the hero's fight sequence. The diva has as much control over her audience as Lilo does out over the group of aliens she's fighting. They were made for this moment. 6A. The scene ends with Lilo hiding in an air conditioning duct, curled in the fetal position, crying. I suppose being shot at by a machine gun is a bit stressful, but her sudden shift from fighting off literally 20 aliens at once to crying and screaming for help is a bit odd. It's more than a bit odd, actually. I'm inclined to think that it is a narrative compromise. A science fiction film can only have a strong female heroine, but only if she's incredibly vulnerable. She needs a man. She needs love. As indicated by the film's climax, she literally can't function without Bruce Willis's character loving her. 6B. The first time we see Lilo, she's literally an object created by a room full of male scientists. While she's seemingly unconscious, the general tries to take a picture of her nearly naked body, quote, for the archives. Her physical perfection is highlighted by her now iconic bandage costume and reiterated not once but twice when she strips down in front of male characters in service of more jokes about her being perfect. 6C. When asked by Entertainment Weekly about the experience of wearing such revealing costumes on set, Mila Jovovich noted, quote, in the fashion world, most of the guys are gay and they have the etiquette not to notice. But these English guys working on the set were whistling and stuff. 
seven. I suppose there are certainly more problematic films that I could have chosen to fall in love with unabashedly. Of course, that's little comfort. I'm essentially saying that sometimes I want to look the other way, to pretend cultural oppression and enforcement aren't an integral part of mainstream film. 7B, but damn it, I love this film. <laughs> the futuristic, the future as Luc Bazin presents it is as colorful as I could hope for and bedecked and closed by Jean-Paul Gaultier, and it has flying cars and gender-bending black people and black presidents and orange-haired action heroines who love fried chicken and save the universe. 7C. Again, though, let's not talk about it. Saeed Jones. Saeed Jones. All right, my turn. Um, this one's going to be short. Um, uh, I wrote this piece uh, back in February, and uh, um, it's funny. Somebody, somebody accused me of not actually being the author uh, because it's so angry. And I said, what, I can't be angry? They said, Jenny, <laughs> have you seen yourself on television? And, I mean, I don't know. Actually, we could have a conversation about the, the Jenner show. But I guess I was the angry person on the Jenner show, too. So. But, I, I mean, I, I always think, I think it was BuzzFeed did a, a, a piece a few years ago on, um, you know, the, the, you know, it was like a listicle of the 10, 10 uh, uh, transgender memoirists and, uh, and a little description of each one. And the good news was I that, that I was... That was you. That was you. I didn't write. Okay. The, so the good news is that the good news is that I was number one. Okay. But the description the description was yes, Jenny Boylan. This is the book to give your mom. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I'd rather be number five and have it, you know, get your mom angry. But so, um, um, I wrote this piece. There was a week when. Uh, the New York Times had a p one of those think pieces about how maybe transgender women aren't really women. Actually, if you think about it, said the cisgender woman who didn't know any transgender people. And then there was also one the same weekend by uh, the some I think it was some famous feminist over in the Times of London had a similar piece. So maybe you remember these pieces or mid, mid February. And uh, then it was also the same week that our friend Milo was on the Bill Mayer show. And um, uh, Bill and Milo, who had so much separating them, managed to find a certain unity in agreeing that transgender women were, were worthy of ridicule. Um, and so, you know, um, a lot of people ask me, well, aren't you going are, you know, to push back? Aren't you going to want to write one of those kind of nice Jenny Boylan pieces where you very politely say, oh, well, actually, you know, we really are nice people if you get to know. And, and, I, and I, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I, I just took this long walk, and I came home, and um, I literally sat down, and I wrote this. Um, and um, uh, instead of sending it to the Times or, uh, or, the, um, or the Post or one of my other usual places, I just put it up on Medium, uh, which is just kind of my way of saying, fuck you. Um, and uh, so, um, so here's, this, here's this piece, um, which I really did write. It's called, I'm All Done. <laughs> I might have to put these glasses on, too, while I read this, which, between the hair and these glasses, make me look a little bit like a combination of Walter Cronkite and Chewbacca, which is, which is good, right? <laughs> Not story. <laughs> Some of you are like, who's Walter Cronkite? 
I call this Chubankrite. <laughs> so, all right, here it is. I'm all done. Another week, another clever think piece by someone who feels it does the world a real service to explain why transgender people aren't who they say they are or aren't entitled to the same fundamental kindness and decency you'd accord any other soul or who have yet another brand new crazy-ass theory about why their own fears and ignorance about us really can be forgiven. This week sees a major essay in a major publication by a woman who has it out for me and people like me. A hugely popular TV comedian's talk show features a guest by someone who allows us how what precious endangered trans children actually deserve is scorn and laughter. No, I'm not gonna post the links. I used to engage with these screeds patiently, one by one, countering their arguments, explaining with Trans 101 Living Color exactly how much more complex gender is than they might have at first expected. I used to parse the differences between transsexual people and genderqueer people and drag queens and kings and crossdressers and gender nonconforming persons of every stripe. I figured it'd be helpful for people to understand the wide diversity of our community, to understand that the many different ways there are of being trans is actually one of our strengths. And, okay, so I still do believe it's helpful sometimes for people to know about the many different ways that there are of being us. That can be helpful sometimes. But I am so over defending my own humanity. I'm so over providing a PowerPoint presentation about the fact that I exist. And I'm completely done with engaging with anyone who has a clever theory explaining why they actually understand my soul better than I do. To be blunt, if your crazy-ass theory of the world doesn't ease the suffering of people whom you do not under understand, maybe what you actually need is a new theory. Look, I'm going to continue to do all the work I've been doing these last 15 years talking about identity and story and love. I'm going to try to support other people in the community whose work I admire or find that work challenging or engaging. But in creative writing circles, we have a saying, show, don't tell. In writing, that means a scene with dialogue and texture and character, that that is much more convincing than narration, explaining, and lecturing. And it strikes me that maybe this is true of our movement as well. It may be that all of the explaining we do of our own lives, all our impassioned speeches about what it means to be trans, what it means to be this particularly complicated and gifted form of human, is less effective than simply being, than simply living in the world and having people understand that we're here, that we're not going away, and that we deserve, <gasps> same as everybody else, equal protection under the law, as well as, who knows, maybe a little human kindness. So the next time another one of these clever screeds appears in print and someone asks me to, to, to provide the counterpoint, I'll gently stand down. You want to know how I'd refute them? Look at me. 
I refute them by living. I refute them by celebrating this life. I refute them every day by getting up and stepping out into the world and by refusing to be defined by anyone or anything other than my own heart. We were warned. We were given an explanation. Nevertheless, what? 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 We persisted! Thank you. Give that one to your mother's book club. All right, the hour is just about 7 o'clock, so, gosh, I don't know. Um, do you want to talk to each other? Do you want to talk to the audience? Do you want to talk to each other and the audience? Well, let's see how interesting we are. Let's start with us, see how interesting you are. I don't think we're that interesting, but let's find could out. go either way. <laughs> really could. Well, um, well, what are you thinking about? That's four really different um, takes on our experience. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's like, I think the thread is like, it's exhausting, right? Um, you know, whether it's just like the exhaustion of just like watching these stories over and over, right? Or like of all the contortion and like, I don't want to talk about it or just like so much as what is even, you know, and, and I'm all done. Um, it's, 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 it's this double bind, right? Where when you're not seeing yourself or you're seeing yourself manipulated in the way you're being represented, you're exhausted, but you end up in this weird loop where you're like, but, but maybe I should keep, you know, and... Yeah, well, because we, we don't want to give up. We want to be engaged. We want to make the world a better place. And for those of us who do media and storytelling and reporting, um, you know, we, would, we want to see that the stories are done right, you know? So, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, always hopeful that the next movie about a transgender person uh, will have a transgender person playing the actual part. That it'll be, you know, yeah, hello. That it will have been written by uh, a transgender person, uh, you know, uh, and that, um, you know, it won't, I mean, I'm just, it's, uh, I, you know, when I see things like Dallas Buyers Club and, and The Danish Girl and, you know, Reassignment and, you know, all the, you know, everything dating back to, you know, I don't even know what, Psycho and, and Dress to Kill and, and, and Silence of the Lambs. And I, I see all of these straight cisgender people giving each other awards for being, for pretending to be me and, and saluting my courage. And I'm like, well, you can salute my courage, but you, what you just did doesn't have anything to do with my life. So I want to be engaged and, and, and make all that better. And then there's some days where I'm just like, oh, man, I think I'm going to, like, take a Vicodin and watch Netflix. <laughs> no, just kidding about the Vicodin. No, Every day since the election, yeah. honey. I, I may have a lead on some Vicodin now. After the <laughs> look at this, look at this. Penn World Voices Festival, bringing people together. No, yes. No, but, Amen. But I think that um, you're, what you're saying about wanting to make narratives better and more holistic and more authentic is incredibly important um, as an antidote to the exhaustion, right? So even though I, I probably contributed the most exhaustion to this discussion because that was <laughs> like the only thing that needed a fucking trigger warning at the Penn Literary Festival tonight, um, I, also, I also feel like it's really, I want to say just really quickly two things that are sort of hopeful, right? One is that um, when I started, when I wrote my book about reality TV, I monitored, 
and analyzed and transcribed every single episode of every single everything for like 10 years, from 2000 to 2010. And I saw almost no positive at all um, images of queer people in reality TV in mainstream network television shows, reality shows, and in more in any of the significant cable reality shows. Only a couple of the very uh, sort of minor, you may not even have them on your channel, on your uh, cable provider, may not have them kind of documentary series were exceptions. Um, there were really literally three, maybe two or three characters in 10 years that I could have pointed to that were positive and there were a bunch that were negative and the majority were invisible. There were just no um, images. But in the last few years, that has been changing. And that's been changing in news media as well, right? Now we have, um, when Jenny, Jenny and I first met in, what was the year your memoir uh, came out? Three. Oh, in 03, when I interviewed her about She's Not There, which is a brilliant memoir, and we talked a lot in that Q&A about um, how news media up until that time um, were obsessed with the narrative of um, trans women being selfish, um, having no concern for their families. Yeah, that's what Oprah, that's what got, uh, Oprah bless, bless her, Winfrey, um, tur turned in the middle of our, like, you know, interview and turned to her audience and says, I don't know, ladies turning to the audience, don't you think it's just selfish to like, like turn yourself into a woman and, and everyone's like, yeah, like the, yeah. And like, it was like the scene out of the British Parliament, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and I was, and it was one of those things where, and I was so happy to be on that show because, you know, I do like Oprah, of course. Um, I knew it would sell books also, hello, um, and that my words would get to the, you know, uh, the people that I wanted to get, get at them, but it was uh, it was being seen through the lens of um, straight and cis experience, and yeah. that um, and um, you know e even now if I publish a thing in the Times, um, I, I and I mention my wife or I mention being tra being trans, well I, I have to figure out if I'm telling a story about my family, how important is it for me to have to explain that I'm trans to a reader who's re you know reading my stuff for the first time, and I I really don't know because sometimes you know I want to bring everybody in I want to sing a come all ye and say everybody it's going to be good because the you know the world contains all of these diverse people and we and just bring everybody into the love on the love train and another part of me thinks you know it's all it's all y'all's problem to catch up with me like I'm not the the trance TA of, of this country. It's like, please, catch the fuck up. But that's the thing that I'm saying <laughs> is hopeful is that now the New York Times asks you to write sometimes about trans issues and other times about whatever else you want, right? And Janik Mock is getting a lot of media attention and creating her own narratives. And Laverne Cox is getting um, a lot of coverage, not only uh, allowing her to um, not only star in Transparent, but uh, sort of create narratives in news media too. And, and the editorial influence behind the scenes on I Am Kate, that, you know, 10 years ago, they would not have been interested in having any editorial influence behind the scenes. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just saying that there's, as much as I, I'm the, I've been super critical of corporate media my entire career, that's why I do what I do, but I feel like it is important to say at least a little bit that public pressure um, does, uh, coordinated uh, active public pressure does sometimes have an impact, just as 
um, all of us telling our own stories forcefully and repeatedly does have an impact. And it's slow, but it's possible and it's changing. Yeah, agreed. I, I wanted to um, ask Thomas w on the same question about weariness. I mean, so you've got... you. You, you might be the least weary of, of, of all of us because you've got it. You're like finishing the book that's, that's on, the, on the runway. But tell, tell us how you feel about this. Do you well, feel, yeah. you know, do you want to engage? I was just thinking, well, I was thinking when everyone else was talking because I try to not talk when other people are talking as a man on the stage. Um, those are the sorts of things I'm thinking about. And I think, I think that those are the sorts of things we should all be thinking about, men, I mean. Um, I don't feel tired right now because what what is more tiring to me, I guess, than um, talking to other people about my gender is engaging with it myself. Mm. And I actually think we should all be doing a lot more of that. I think it would be less exhausting for me if, if everybody, I don't think trans people are magical. We've been around since the beginning of time. We're just here like talking about ourselves, which is great. And I think the forwardness in the media um, of being able to come forward and, 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 and engage these narratives and tell these stories and Saeed and I have been working together for a long time to try to make that happen. We're friends from a long way back, and it's amazing to see what's changing, but also I think we all have a gender. To speak of gender specifically, we all have a race too, and I think the, the ability to just engage with that is like the work of being human is mm. to think about your body and space, and we would all be a lot better off if we all spent that time doing that. I, I think, weirdly, doing that for myself and just telling people about it isn't exhausting me because I'm like now your turn, you know. Like let's just let's just have this conversation, and keep it going. And I kind of believe in people. I'm like I'm, gonna, I'm so far so good. I All guess. Right. Well, <laughs> in the spirit of uh, in that same spirit, um, let's engage with um, all of you kind souls who've been listening to us carrying on for the last hour. Um, what can we What can we do? Uh, what can what, what would you like to say or ask or uh, or what do you want to know? What can we do? Um, so. I'm um, seeing right here in the front row oh, in the row in the red. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering because uh, obviously I agree, that, uh, especially with what you were just saying Jennifer, about um, uh, visibility progressing so so rapidly and in so many ways, especially for um, trans Americans. Um, uh, but there is also the conversation that I know is going on, particularly in the trans community right now, that um, deals with. Did you all hear the question? Uh, it's it's uh, it, it takes uh, the the um, audience member asks about what's your name by the way? Sam. Sam. Sam asks um, uh, praises increased visibility, but notes that increased visibility has also led to um, a backlash and an increase in violence, especially among the most vulnerable members of the trans community um, and trans women of color in particular. So, and Sam asks, what can be done to mitigate that? Anybody want to take that on? I mean, there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work who are trying to, re you know, face off of that issue on a policy level, on a social justice level. I personally try to support people doing that and the organizations doing that. I think there's sort of different jobs for different people, and uh, you know, we're writers, and for me anyway, like that's my work. Um, but the f yeah, like 
there's a way that capitalizing on there's something gross about you know certain people capitalizing on this without putting that money in you know some sort of redistribution of, of those funds in a way that will actually help the people who need the help the most you know I'm fine uh, yeah I mean, so. I mean the weird thing is that it used you know they used to not know that we were here right. uh, and w when that was true uh, no one knew that they were supposed to hate us, you know, and I could, you know, I mean, my transition in 2003 in some ways was easier than someone transitioning now because especially in a little town, in a little state like Maine, where I just kind of went around and just kind of, you know, went to the town clerk, oh, could you change my, my ID here? Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Gladys. Yep. See you at the PTA. Bye. You know, um, um, and, um, you know, it, it's, uh, so, I mean, I was in North Carolina uh, over, over, I was part of this book tour I was on, I was in North Carolina on, on Sunday, and part of me was like, well, maybe I shouldn't even go to North Carolina, mm. you know, because, and then I thought, yes, because not, not selling those half a dozen books at that bookstore <laughs> is going to bring that economy down. Um, and I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of transgender people there who'd probably like to have a conversation with, 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 me, with me or with someone like me. So I went, and it was wonderful, and I was so glad I was there. You know, but then uh, while I was in the airport, I had to I had to go to the bathroom, and I was and I did not know, do I, do I do I use the men's room, thus avoiding. Do I, do I use do I use the women's room, which is what I used to, used to normally do without even even thinking about it because there weren't any laws against against us because no one knew we were here, um, uh, uh, but in so doing commit a felony or do I use part of me was like you know what I'm gonna use the freaking men's room. You know, and like, and I hope I run into some some guys and some Republican guys in there and say, "Yep, this is what you wanted. Happy." <laughs> you know. By the way, do you have any lipstick? Because I'm. So I didn't. I di did use the women's room. In the end, I used the women's room because I was too frightened. I was too scared. But I did come up with a little song, which goes, "In my mind, I'm peeing in Carolina." <laughs> Can't you see the colored spigots? Can't you see transphobic bigots? Tar Heels, I don't dig it when you kick me from behind. Yes, I'm peeing in Carolina in my mind. Thank you very much. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> I, I didn't know that's what I needed. I, mean, I think one, one quick thing I would say is about, and this is another unintended consequence, is... Um, because we're coming from such a, a lack, we're, as, as viewers, as readers, as watchers, we're understandably ravenous. Um, and so something I've been paying a lot of attention to, and it's, it's complex, I don't, I don't have the answers, maybe you do, you're brilliant, um, but it, it, it's like, it, when a, a film, as a black gay man, when a film like Moonlight yeah. appears, and it's excellent, it's a wonderful piece of work, I, I feel like a, a, a different kind of anxiety. Please let it be good. I hope it's good. What is it? Uh, and you know, and then people are like, "Well, right. all gay, all right. black gay men aren't like that. And why has he got to be masculine? What about a fem?" And again, all this because we're ravenous. We're we're not just hungry. We're we're underfed. We're malnourished. And so this intense amount of pressure that pressure that I see as an editor, right, on put on trans women of color like Janet Mock. Or liver. I mean, it, it's crazy. I, I, I'll have them do one thing with me at work, and then like every white gay man um, with with an email address is like, can can she come do this? Can, and I'm sure you deal with this too. And I'm like, th there are plenty of trans women and trans women of color and and gender nonconform. They're not the only ones. Stop yeah. like yeah. 
overdoing it. So that's something yeah. else to grapple with. And you become visible, yeah. and then you're the one, you know? Uh, and the one other thing that I would say, just on a media activist um, tip, is that none of this progress happens because corporate media, or from an activist perspective in general, because politicians um, just won't have the, uh, the generosity or one day wake up and are like, hey, I was on the wrong side of history, let's be on the right side today. It's, <laughs> it's much more about um, what does it cost them to not do right. Um, so when you're talking about unintended consequences, like say all this coverage of the bathroom bills of the last couple of years, right? Um, we need to be writing letters to the editor. Newspapers that still exist do actually read letters to the editor. Um, every time one person, if it's a regional readership that has, say they have 100,000 readers, they assume that one letter is representing maybe 1,000 people for people who just didn't have the time or inclination to write, but, they, but that's letters to the editor are seen as representing more. If it's a national outlet like the Times, they might think it's 10,000 people. We all need to be writing. We need to be tweeting at those editors who ran that garbage article or that politician who has that garbage policy and, and showing that there is mass public outrage um, around that kind of problematic coverage or policy. And, and the more we can get organizations on board, so whether it's, say, um, GLAD or Color of Change or Women Action in the Media or any of the, if we can partner up with a campaign um, that's already trying to improve media coverage or trying to improve policy, that'll make uh, individual action more collective and more potentially useful. Here, here. And another thing you can do is to support Penn yes. uh, and the fight for freedom of expression worldwide. Um, you can support the writers, these wonderful three writers, and Eileen Miles as well, um, my four wonderful panelists who joined me tonight, whose books are for sale to your left. Um, and you can tell your own story um, because um, all stories should be told. Um, and not one story is not better than another. So um, we have and a lot of work to do. you can examine your gender. And you can, <laughs> and. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's. <laughs> always mansplaining. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Hi, everyone. I just want to mention that we do have another panel at 7.30 p.m. You are welcome and very encouraged to stay for it. If you're not staying for it, we hope you will buy some books, but go ahead and make some room for the next folks that are coming in to sit down. Thank you so much. Yeah, do stick around. Uh, 15 minutes from now, gender, power, and faith with me and four more great panelists.
this fight about? Why do we even have this fight? Melissa? Yes. Melissa? Can we test these? Testing mic five. Testing mic five. Testing mic four. We, is this one at max? Testing mic three. Testing mic two. Testing mic one. Is this louder or is this louder? Testing, testing, testing. Okay, and glasses? Yeah. Uh, 